0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. Today's guest is Lisa Maxwell, the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Magician, Magician. Unhooked, Sweet Unrest, and Gathering Deep. When she's not writing books, Lisa teaches English at a local college. Lisa joined me to talk about the querying process, having a folder marked the reject file, and why it's so important to follow your gut when you have multiple agents offering representation. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for I danger. I always ask authors about Master her querying and an agent Hunt journey. The so anything you have to share about duty, this, love, from magic, where you learned how to write quest, a query, how querying, how, how many queries drones, you sent, just tell us a little bit about that journey for you and Lydown. what it was like trying to get an agent as an unpublished, unknown author. I actually used you, I think. Okay, right
1: back in. Yeah, right. I think this is back in 2010. Yeah, 2010 is when I started trying to actually write creatively. And I wrote a book that I finally felt like I wanted to query your blog was one of the websites that had stuff. I'm a researcher by nature. I just get all the information I can. And it makes me feel better about things. There were a ton of great blogs that I probably can't remember now because it's been so long. I remember yours being one of them specifically because you had your query slash. Saturday
0: Slash. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's so nice (laughs) to hear.
1: Thank you. Query Shark and Query Tracker and I don't know I'm a Virgo so I just made lists. (laughs) That's perfect. And I called my list the reject file. I just assumed I'd write five or six novels before something would ever hit get the nose and then move on right and then Mm -hmm. I could get a yes eventually. So I queried Sweet and Rest and Probably not the best way to query, but I had this kind of idea that it was a numbers game. Like once I was getting requests, and I was getting requests from pretty well-known agents on that book. I kind of was like, well, then I'm just going to sign a bunch of queries out and get the nose. Not really expecting anybody's ever going to say yes on this one. Probably queried 80 or 90 people. I had competing offers, and I was an idiot and went with the one at the bigger agency instead of the one that I liked better. Oh, okay. Right. Because I was like looking at, well, he's at a bigger agency and he's actually sold things. My gut reaction was I liked the other woman I talked to better. They were both really baby agents, young, young agents. He took that on submission and then he didn't like any of my next books. Tweet and Rest was paranormal romance. I think he thought, just write me another. So then I queried again and I had another set of competing offers and like an idiot, I went again with the bigger agent instead of the gut reaction. An agent who'd gotten like seven figure deals and she was really excited to work with the book. And Kathleen, my agent now, was the second agent. And Kathleen, like, had read, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages, she said, and she'd already offered. She's like, from what I've read, you can write anything and I want to work with you. And I still didn't go with her because I'm not too bright, apparently. (laughs) So I went with the other agent. We did these revisions and the other agent, she was like, I don't know, there's other Peter Pan things that sold. Let's just wait on this one. So she didn't want to take it to market. That was right before Once Upon a Time was hinting that they were going to have a Peter Pan plot. And I was like, well, if you don't take it now, it's always going to look like fanfic. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I actually broke up with her and just emailed Kathleen. And I was like, hi, it's been six months. I don't know if you remember me, but... And then luckily she was still interested and we were on submission in like a week.
0: You've broken up with two agents. Yeah. So why don't you talk about what that process is like? Because generally in a contract with an agent, you or the agent, you can break up with each other at any time. Just walk us through that.
1: You work so hard to get an agent, right? You've racked up hundreds of no's. You have the right. promised land. The idea of telling them you're not going to work with them when you don't have, because you can't have the other one in your pocket. Like it's not ethical to do that. I think I did it in an email for both. And it was about a year, I would say it was a year and a half between when I broke with him and finished unhooked and actually requeried. So I was unagented for a while on that one. And the second one, I think the big problem was I was just intimidated. Like she was such a big named agent and I never really felt like I deserved her. She was lovely. It was nothing about her. It was totally about my own insecurities. But the same sort of thing, like, I think I did it in an email and I think I asked her about a waiting period and she's like, no, we can just do this effective immediately. But the first one that I broke up with, he was the one that submitted Sweet and Rest and Sweet and Rest sold like two years after it was on submission randomly. And I was already with Mm. Kathleen and he just was like, no, you can have it. It was a small deal. So Mm -hmm. he just signed off on it completely. So it wasn't that hard to break up with him. I mean, other than the fact that you had
0: to do it and write the email phrasing that i'm sure is very difficult
1: it is because you're just like can i just keep you until i get somebody but you can't
0: you really need to break up with the person that you're with before you have exactly. the next one already lined up it's really frowned yeah. upon they like know each other you... it's a small industry among the agents the publishers the editors right the publicists and the writers so i'll have a friend you know a writer friend lives in Ohio and is a friend of mine. And his agent is in the office right next to my agent. My agent is friends with his agent. They go out to lunch. So it's just a small, small world. And that's another thing to be aware of because sometimes you might have issues with people in the industry like agents or other writers. You might've had a bad experience. It's a very small world and everybody knows each other. And if you're saying negative things about an author or an agent, go to other people in the industry, someone you're talking to knows them and that will get back to them. Honestly, you should never say bad things about another author. I I really believe that. But an agent, like if you had an experience and someone comes to you and says, hey, because agents will sometimes they'll ask for referrals or writer that has an offer from an agent comes to you and says hey I know you used to be repped by this person what was your experience why did you break up with him you should always be honest but in general it's just like it's just like high school man gossip is bad absolutely and
1: I think like even when you're telling the truth I do it in very very neutral ways here's what happened not like here's what I feel like
0: exactly facts not emotion
1: it's a tiny tiny world I have had three editors and two books at Simon Pulse, so they all know each other, too. Even if you're having issues, it's, I always feel like a lot of that is just emotion that's coming from other things than the the actual neutral
0: fact. It's a business that deals with art. Business is facts, and art is emotion. You end up in weird situations sometimes. There's no doubt about it. Yep.
1: I have a friend who had a really horrific agent experience, and then I knew somebody mm-hmm. who was offered representation for that agent, and I was just really careful. Like, you should talk to this person.
0: Right. No, I agree. That's the best way to do it. Say, before you sign anything, you need to talk to this person. And I think it's an important thing for aspiring writers to know. One of the things that they say is that no agent is better than a bad agent, and
1: that's true. Oh my gosh, that's so true. And considering that they have your book forever, I mean, I have friends who... Their first agents who sold their first books, they didn't work out, but they still have to deal with those agents and those agencies.
0: It's like having a child with someone you're divorced from.
1: Exactly. Like, I made the mistake twice of not going with my gut. Mm. I should have went with Kathleen. Like, I loved her when I talked to her the first time. I went with the numbers.
0: I had two offers for not a drop to drink, and one of them was an agent that had sold something crazy like 30 books that month. Like She was on fire. She's a really high-powered agent, and she knows what she's doing, and she's really smart. And I had a good conversation with her, but she really is more leans toward romance. Mm -hmm. And I don't write that. And she wanted me to change the end to not a drop to drink. She wanted a happier end on it, and I was just like, oh, man. And so I had a conversation with her, and then I talked to Adrian, my agent, who had one YA sale at that point. She had sold one YA title, and she was like, I love your writing, I love how dark it is, I love the grittiness, I think the ending is appropriate, and I'm like, oh my god, okay, well, I'm going with you. And I had been uh, querying for 10 years trying to get an agent, and here I had a dream agent and an agent that actually got me.
1: You're so smart. The second time when I went kind of crawling back on my knees, begging, like, hi, it's Kathleen. She'd had a few sales by then, but nothing big. And now she's moved mm-hmm. to, like, Andrea Brown. Now she's routinely right. one of the top ten, like, YA agents listed on Publishers Marketplace. It was an idiot
0: because we mm-hmm. work really well together, you know, as a team. I just think it's really good to have these conversations for aspiring authors to listen in on. Yeah. About the failed relationships with an agent.
1: Right. And I think part of what I was thinking is like, well, this is a business relationship and we don't need to be friends. It is a business relationship, but because you need to be able to talk with them and you need that person who's going to have your back. I think you have to know what you need out of a relationship. I have a friend who she works so differently than I do. Like her relationship with her agent is such that She will write these, like, five or six two-line pitches of possible ideas that she's thinking Mm -hmm. about doing, and she'll Mm -hmm. see which one her agent likes, and then she'll write. Mm -hmm. I just write the weird thing and hand it to Kathleen. I can only write what I really feel like writing at that moment. So I think, like, knowing how you work is really important, too, and what an agent's going to be receptive for.
0: Up next, Lisa on writing a series versus writing standalones and the never-ending popularity of Peter Pan. Forbidden from sailing after a failed mission, Princess Nile disguises herself as a commoner to get out on the high seas again. Now she must whip the incompetent crew into ship shape while dodging the arrogant, too-handsome first officer, hiding her identity, and concealing forbidden magic. Discover an addicting new YA fantasy series with a kick-ass heroine. For fans of Sarah J. Moss, Air and Ash by Alex Liddell. Now available in audiobook. Let's talk about your first two books, Sweet Unrest and Gathering Deeper, part of a series. So you've also written a standalone and you have another series in the mix right now. Mm -hmm. So do you find that you prefer writing one or the other? And what do you find are the challenges for each, for standalone and for series? That's a
1: good question. So I wrote Sweet Unrest back in 2010 when everybody was selling trilogies and I thought you just needed to have a trilogy. And by the time Mm -hmm. it sold, nobody wanted a trilogy anymore because that big Bump in paranormal romance was dead. The second book of that was not the trilogy that I wanted to do, and so Gathering Deep was. It was interesting because I wrote it from a secondary character's point of view. Like I knew what I wanted to do was take the villain from Sweet and Rest and give her a backstory, and then like Unhooked, I was really done with that when it was done because the revision process was so intense. Like I purposely designed The Last Magician in a world that was huge. I wanted the world to be big enough that if people liked it, I could just keep writing other stories in that world, which I'm kind of regretting now because I'm writing the second book of it and it's hard. There have been points where, and my husband tells me this is just part of my process. I have amnesia once it's over. So where I'm just like, can I just give them back the money and we'll just call the ending of The Last Magician the ending? (laughs) But he tells me I do this for every book. I don't believe him, but that's what he does. He's taking notes now so he can prove it to me. But The Last Magician, that I was writing it, and it was really long. This is not one book. Luckily, my publisher was like, sure, great. Give us another one. Is it going to be a duology or a trilogy? And I'm, I don't know. Like, I didn't want to tell them it was going to be a trilogy and have a mm-hmm. sagging book in the middle. So I wrote this god-awful synopsis. It's like the worst synopsis I've ever written. It included the word dude, like, multiple mm-hmm. times. The end was like, and so it's going to kind of end like this, but I haven't figured it out yet. But I'm sure it'll be okay
0: that's right. valid if you are a pantser like i am I'm i have not. written synopses. i'm not
1: that's the thing it's so bad Oh. but they seemed happy and my editor's like yeah
0: that sounds like a really big
1: story i think this is a trilogy
0: the biggest challenge with trilogies is always that saggy second book right and i think that's why duologies are big now we've kind of had that kickback where it went from everybody wanted trilogies to only standalones to now we're kind of flirting with that again, and we're saying, maybe we'll try duologies. Yeah.
1: So I think it depends on the scope of the story you were telling. I mean, for Unhook, that story wasn't a bigger story. It was really just that kind of world in Neverland and that those sets of characters. But The Last Magician, I mean, that's five points of view. It's time travel. It's like the story of America. It's right. a giant epic scope that even if I'm not branching off with secondary narratives, just to get... Those five or six characters that are well developed characters, enough of an arc, it, it's gonna take more than one book.
0: Heck yeah, yeah. there's no way. When I was writing the outline for Given to the Sea, I turned it into my agent. It was a 10 page synopsis. And she was like, Mindy, this is not one book and I was like well it is it's just like a really long book right (laughs) but then once I got into writing it like you're saying I have four POVs and given to the sea yeah and if everybody's gonna get an arc yeah I mean you need space and especially when you're writing fantasy and you have magic involved you got to do all the world building you got to have a lot of space there's no doubt about that right do you know what your word count was for the last magician Hundred
1: and thirty-two thousand people seem to be okay with how long it is. They seem to be happy Mm -hmm. that it's like a 500-page book.
0: No, I I ran into that with Given to the Sea, too. I would turn it in, and they're like, wow, this is a long book. And I'm like, hey, it's a big story. And, uh, you know, we did trim in editing, but very little. Like you're saying, when you're writing a fantasy, when you have so many characters and subplots, it needs space. Like that's all there is to it. But I think that fantasy readers are very forgiving on length. And some of them are even relieved when they see that dense book because they know they can dive in and be fully immersed. And that's what they want.
1: I have people ask all the time, oh, do you like being with Simon Pulse? They let me write a 500 page book. Because as I was writing it, people be like, are they going to let you do that? And I was like, they seem to be. They were just like, you know, there's ways that we can manipulate the page. It'll be fine. If I would have had to cut out the secondary characters, there's no way the book would be as good. I will be forever right. grateful that they let me write that ridiculously long book.
0: No, I totally understand. I feel the same way about my fantasy series. They let me play and they let me run around in that world and build it up and mm-hmm. do a lot of different things with that. And even though I'm not known for the fantasy, but it's, so it's good. something I'm really proud of. Oh, thank you. Yeah, And I'm really proud of that book. Um, I hope it finds more of an audience.
1: Yeah, well, I hope it does, too, because it's I mean, like the world building in it is so rich and inventive. The world is fun.
0: Thank you. I enjoyed building it. So let's talk about Unhooked. Yeah. It's a Peter Pan retelling. It is. You know, I have to admit, I think I told you this before. Peter Pan and Neverland have, like, never done it for me. But for whatever reason, they have fascinated readers from their inception years ago right up to the modern day. People are really way into Peter Pan. Why is that? Like, what do you think it is about the story that continues to resonate and what new angle – Did you bring to it with Unhooked?
1: I think escapism is part of it. I think that it's changed kind of over time. I don't think I brought anything new to it. I think I went back to the old school Peter Pan. Peter and Wendy, which is super dark. It played into this idea of adventure and masculinity and colonialism that was really prevalent in the early 20th centuries, where it was, like, glorious to go off and fight a battle. Like, that's, that's what you yearn to do, just to go be a soldier and march off. Because so much of that book, Peter and Wendy, is just about who can we kill? The native people on the island, and we can kill the pirates, and we can kill the wild animals. It's just bloody and violent and fun. He's super twisted and kind of liked that about it. Peter Pan is a sociopath, maybe even a psychopath. I think it kind of fed into this larger idea of performing masculinity or performing violence as being glorious. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted to do in the book. It struck me that the generation that grew up with Peter and Wendy, that was the same generation of kids who were running off to World War One, thinking that this was going to be a good time. And World War One changed things because, and you can see it in the poetry, where the poetry starts off, oh, it is great and good and glorious to die for my country. And it ends up with these really terrible descriptions of the soldiers barefoot trudging through the trenches and drowning in gas. So that's what I wanted to play with in that book. I don't know that most people who read it get that. So in Unhooked, it has these little chapter headings that tell a secondary story. And it tells a secondary story in a very once upon a time tone and voice. Mm-hmm. But that's the World War One story. And in that story, I've actually lifted lines from Peter and Wendy and put them in the mouths of these boy soldiers. And I tried to make Neverland. A lot of the descriptions, I pulled from descriptions of trenches. But that's what fascinated me, is why did people like this story? Because it's really twisted. Peter Pan is weird, because it's this strange combination of complete violence and savagery, in the sense that like we don't care that we're killing people and things. Also domestication, because it's a story about the little woman is going to come and domesticate these wild boys. It's
0: so bizarre. Right. That's something that I always thought was so interesting about the book. Cause you were talking about escapism. Yeah. And it's like kind of true, but kind of not because Wendy escapes the nursery Right. and she doesn't want to move out of the nursery. She doesn't want to grow up, but then she escapes to a land where her job is to be a mom. Right.
1: I mean, she's not yeah. out there chomping through the jungle. So
0: no, she gets to fly. It's a weird book. Yeah. yeah, it really is, and I encourage everyone to actually read Peter Pan right. by J.M. Barry. It's not an easy read. I don't want to say it's not well-written, but it's
1: not lyrical in the sense of an easy lyrical book. It's, it's complicated, and it's really dense. a convoluted sentence structure. I don't know. I find uh-huh. it completely amazing that it has lasted, and yet I don't because I think it lets people have those fantasies, but
0: especially about yes. violence. I think the, the violence. Violence and yeah. boys never having to grow up right. and women having to grow up too soon.
1: Yeah, so there you yeah. go. I just took a fun story and made it into an overly intellectual.
0: There you go. But it's not a fun story. Not, that's what no. I appreciate about it. Yeah. yeah.
1: No. So I don't know that I added anything. I just tried to go back and resuscitate what it really I is. You tried to be
0: honest about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, like my whole Neverland, what I did was I basically took all the world building from the original story and just put the darkness back into it.
0: hmm I love it. I love it. And that's right up my alley. Coming up. How hitting the New York Times bestseller list can be a career maker, and how important it is to not let that affect who you are. So, The Last Magician, it broke you out in a big in a big way. And suddenly, you're a New York Times bestselling author. I mean, like, oh my gosh. Right? I don't know what happened. I remember I signed with you, like, right after it hit, and you were, you were just like, I don't even know what's going on. I still, I still <laughs> honestly don't, but I'm not going to give it back. That whole mercurial idea of the list, was this something that you or your publisher were expecting or was it totally, was it more of a sleeper hit?
1: I was not expecting it because I am not an optimistic person ever by nature. I just expect the worst at all times and prepare for it. And then I'm pleasantly surprised if it doesn't happen. And the (laughs) list was never a bucket list for me because I've always kind of felt like you're not in control of it. You're not in control of the size deal you get. You're not in control of what you can convince your publisher to do to sell it. So I've always had this kind of perspective that if I can just keep publishing, that's what I want to do. And if I can get Mm -hmm. good reviews, trade reviews, I can control the quality of my book. I can't Mm -hmm. control sales. I can't control that outside stuff. Because if I could, somebody would have figured it out already and we'd all be bestsellers. I was not expecting it. No. I don't know that they were necessarily. I think that when they got the cover set the summer before, they had bumped up whatever their order was for printing. But like, I literally don't know what my print runs are because I don't want to know. I can't control it. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know if it's too small or too big. It just would play with my head. I think they sent me to one book fest out in Berkeley in May, which I was like, oh my gosh, you're sending me somewhere. And it's to California. This is incredible. This is the first time anything like that's ever happened. Good for Unhooked. It was a lead title, but not in the sense that I got to do anything for it. So no, I I wasn't expecting it. I don't know that they were. Apparently, like, it was on some kind of Barnes & Noble buzz list. The week or two before, it popped up on Amazon, like the Amazon landing page for YA. I think it's just really photogenic.
0: Well, I think the cover did you huge favors. It's a beautiful cover.
1: gorgeous. I, I like, won the lottery. I found out recently the guy who does it, he's a graphic artist, but he's like one of the top 10 rock concert poster artists working now. My editor told me that day she'd been checking book scan mm. and it was close. Mm-hmm. So I actually was telling my husband, like, I want to go on a bike ride tonight. I don't want to be in the house. I was like, I don't want to be disappointed. So, you know, cause I'm optimistic yeah. like that. And so when yeah, she called, too. like, I almost didn't even answer the phone. Like I wasn't even close to my phone.
0: Do you happen to know how many books you sold that first week, just so that people can get an idea of Um, uh, what it takes to
1: hit the list? I do not, but I can tell you that first week I was eight and I looked at the publisher's weekly Mm -hmm. list, which is actual sales numbers, but I would say probably a few thousand, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's not much. My husband was like so excited and I was like, no, really it's, let me show you. People are going to think we're rich now. And I'm like, well, stop telling them.
0: That's something I run into, too. People think I have a lot of extra money. And I'm like, dude, I pay the bills and then I eat like frozen food. Yeah. So the list, it's interesting. You're right that in your opening week, if you sell, it's obviously it fluctuates because of the fact that it all depends on how much somebody else sold, too. But I would say like 1500 and you've got a good shot at hitting. I it all depends on how everybody else is selling. Once you get that exposure, once you've, your name and the title is up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's been great. That's huge. My fifth week
1: on the list was the week that the handbook for mortals came out.
0: Oh, okay. Right? Got so it, I yeah. was like
1: on the list while everybody was lamenting how the list was just this rake thing that people bought their way into. And I was like, I can't say anything, but like, I don't think anybody bought this for me. Right. But it is editorial, right? It is not straight sales. It's not just who sold the most that week. It's whatever magical algorithm that the New York times people come up with. I wrote a really good book. Like I'm really proud of right. the last magician. I didn't put it on the list. And I know so many right. people who have amazing books who are probably better writers than I am that aren't on the list. So I kind of feel like I've had experiences already where people now pay attention to me because of that. And then mm-hmm. they ignore the person sitting next to me
0: who doesn't have it. Those of us that are in the industry, we know that you don't have to sell a butt-ton of books in order to hit. We also know how the list is compiled. It's not straight sales. There are certain, just for listeners so that you know, there are certain stores that are reporting stores for New York Times. And so the list, the New York Times list, is not an accurate representation of how many books actually sold across the entire United States that week. It's from certain stores. It's like, we know that. But the average reader does not. And so they hear New York Times bestselling author and they're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing, you know. Right. And, and it is amazing and it does mean something, but it means something different to us than it means to the average reader. Right.
1: And I like that it means something to the average reader. I feel like it gives me exposure to the average reader. Every single person is one book away from a flop and being forgotten and one book away from yep. the bestseller. I started out trying to write romance, which didn't go well because people die in my books. The romance community is really, really good at pulling people up and hooked soul because Jennifer Eccles, I met her when I lived in Birmingham, that book was dead in the water. And she got a new editor at Simon Pulse, whose wishlist said pirate book. And she's like, oh, I have a friend who's writing one. And another editor at Pulse had already rejected my book. So I emailed her. I'm like, this would not have happened if you hadn't been so kind and generous. And she's like, no, that's what we should do for each other. And I I really believe that. Yeah working on the work is what you can control. You can't control the other stuff. Be awesome to other people, like build a community that way and not worry about lists and stars. And to me, it's not important. And it wasn't important before I hit. And I feel like as much as I love it and it makes me mm-hmm. giddy to see it, it may never happen again.
0: And you're modest enough and grounded enough to know that. So that's really great. I don't know that it's modesty. I think it's just like my defense
1: mechanism that I just expect bad things okay. to constantly happen. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I totally hear I'm you. Prepare. <laughs> Maybe realistic, because this isn't my living. Realistically, I'm going to have a day job forever.
0: Tell us about what's coming up for you. Obviously, you're working on the second book. Can you tell us the title?
1: So I cannot tell you the title yet, because that's not out.
0: Oh, okay. It's not
1: out yet. Right, no I know the title, though. And I will say that if people okay. want to know the title earlier, they should go to my website, which is www.lisa-maxwell.com, and they can sign up for my newsletter, because I often tease my newsletter people with stuff. So I'm basically working on the last magician series forever because I have two more books to write for that. And I have a middle grade, like a dark contemporary fantasy middle grade that is on submission right now.
0: That's awesome. You mentioned your site. Why don't you tell us where else people can find you like on social media?
1: So right now on Instagram at Lisa Maxwell 13, I am not on Twitter right now. I made my husband change my password. I'm supposed to be done with book two by Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. and I just kept getting sucked into Twitter. So I probably yeah. will be back eventually. And that's at Lisa Maxwell, YA Instagram I'm on still. So you can find me there or my website. You can sign up for the newsletter. Cause I am sending out a newsletter usually on the 13th of every month.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis, music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.